Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Institute of World Politics. Do pass the coins along, but at the same time, I'd like you to uh, welcome our speaker, uh, Mr. Rice. Mr. Uh, Mr. Rice is not to be confused with another James Rice who's here. Uh, his main focus today, I hope in the future, is going to be the intermarium and this event today is put on by the Center for Intermarium Studies and the Pichuskoche and Polar Studies, uh, which I happen to uh, head. Uh, Mr. Rice is a legislative director for a U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley. He's worked with him since June 2000, so it's been almost 18 years. Well, exactly. 18 it's been 18 years, years as of I think yesterday. Um, maybe yesterday. Yes. Uh, <coughs> uh, Mr. Rice is interested in the Baltics. Not only, but he, or he uh, works with the Baltic Freedom Cau uh, Caucuses. More, he's interested mostly in the Western post-Soviet zone. Uh, he worked in the uh, Iowa Senate. He held an internship with the, the Conservative Party in Great Britain, thank God, Northern Canada. And he has worked on various political campaigns. His BA is from Drake University, double major in political science and history. And right now he's pursuing his MA in international relations and statecraft in international relations here at the Institute of World Politics. I would like you to welcome Mr. Wright. His lecture is based on work he did in our seminar in the spring on uh, Russian politics and foreign policy, which starts, well, the seminar starts with DNA, so it starts thousands of years ago. Starting DNA, then it goes through. Uh, the Vikings, Eastern Slavs, the Rus, Ruthenians, and then it proceeds eventually to a muddy little village called Masa, which having uh, mastered the wickedness of the Mongols, has been deploying it ever since against all of its neighbors on all sides. Without much more ado, here is Mr. Rice. Thanks very much. So, um, so yes, this uh, the paper is about Ukraine and its, uh, its sense of national identity. Um, according to many sources, the name Ukraine itself means borderland. That's that's apparently disputed, uh, but many people have, have said that, um, and so that raises the question of whether uh, Ukraine is a, a nation of its own, its own right, or just a, a crossroads between other nations. Um, so, spoiler alert, it is a nation, um, but, um, it, uh, but it does, you can't, uh, you can't ignore the fact that over its turbulent history, it has been influenced and, and controlled different parts of it by different, uh, very different uh, uh, neighbors and civilizations, and they've all left their imprint. Um, 
So, uh, going back to the beginning, as uh, Dr. Horkiv said, there we start with uh, the Kievan Rus, uh, which is based out of Kiev. So the uh, that's the ancestor of modern Ukraine, um, and uh, you know uh, from that we have we have the Mongol invasion, which essentially decimated the population of Ukraine. Uh, that civilization sort of collapsed amongst the Mongol invasions. And at that time, during the Mongol invasion is when uh, Muscovy really rose to prominence uh, through its collaboration with, uh, with the Mongols. And uh, also as a result of the Mongol invasion, the uh, Grand Duchy of Lithuania was able to control much of the western portions of uh, Kievan Rus. And so that started the history of western civilization having um, a major influence over uh, what's now Western Ukraine, um, and that uh, you know that divide can be illustrated by the the Union of Brest and the formation of the Uniate Church uh, in Western Ukraine. Uh, that uh, uh, that had a, a, you know there's some interesting aspects of that uh, aside from just sort of East-West split. In that uh, during that time there was. Uh, um, Cossacks uh, came to uh, came to rise to prominence in the in the, the south and, and east, and they uh, they were sort of a buffer between the, the Tatars in the south and the uh, Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, and so we have a, a situation where uh, you have a sort of Ukrainian polity that is um, sort of uh, fending itself off from east and west, and you had you had essentially the uh, the Catholic influence on the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, you had obviously the, the Tatars and the Muslim influence, and then you had a, um, a still an Orthodox heart in, uh, in Kiev, and you have a polity that's sort of balancing off its neighbors to try to chart its own course, and that is a, a pattern that I've seen kind of reappear uh, in, uh, in Ukraine, Ukrainian history, is this notion of it's a, uh, it carved its identity out by, by the fact that it's, yes, it's a crossroads between there's different countries on all sides, but it's always managed to kind of play its neighbors off each other to chart its own course. Um, so let's see. The, uh, so who were the Cossacks? Uh, they were mostly bands of one runaway peasants from other parts, uh, settled parts of Ukraine, who wanted to live their lives free from landlords and imperial governments. Uh, so what we have is a, an independent streak that maybe you can trace to today. Um, you know, certainly in um, Russia has a history of, uh, of autocratic governments and, and uh, keeping people compliant. Uh, the people who didn't like that ended up <laughs> going to the, 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 the steppe, which uh, has some interesting parallels to the American, you know, frontier, the idea of uh, independent people that, that want to live their own lives. They, they go to the frontier, and that's, uh, that's a spirit that I think uh, you, can, you can also see in Ukrainian history. The uh, most significant Cossack polity, arguably, is the uh, hetmanate of Bogdan Kemelnitsky. Uh, he became a significant political and military force in the mid-17th century. Um, and that, again, uh, that, uh, that polity proved adept at regional geopolitics. So, for instance, um, uh, you, know, you, have the, uh, you have an alliance with the Tatars at that time against the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. So in the situation in you know, Ukrainian history, there's been a, a shift in terms of they'll ally with whoever they need to to preserve their independence, and that can switch depending on who's the biggest threat at the time. 
Um, so the uh, uh, this also is the first uh, the first the first polity that uh, is recorded as being called in Ukraine, and whether the name Ukraine uh, comes about. Um, and certainly, the, the Cossack identity remains very important for uh, for Ukrainians. It's still a, it's still an important symbol. And Catherine the Great recognized the, the power of that symbol because when she abolished the hetmanate, uh, she is supposed to have said, "quote Every effort should be made to eradicate them and their and their age from memory." Quote, which, um, which tells you that she saw that as a uh, as a threat to the attempt to to Russify or or, or eliminate the separate identity of, of the Ukraine. Uh, and, and a later hetman, um, Ivan Mazepa, was. Uh, known for being very close allies with Peter the Great. He was considered a very reliable ally. But then, when it, when it suited uh, uh, his purposes, or he thought it did, uh, he switched his allegiance to the Swedish king, Charles XII. Um, so again, a situation where they were thought, he was thought to be, uh, you know, essentially uh, in lockstep with, uh, with the Russian Empire. But when it, when it made sense, uh, it let the allegiances switch. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we have uh, a situation where uh, the Russians have an attitude toward uh, toward Ukraine that uh, uh, doesn't necessarily recognize the uh, the, the, the separate identity. Um, the Russians refer to them as little Russians. They have this myth that the center of the Rus civilization shifted from Kiev to uh, to Moscow in medieval times, uh, and that all the former Rus lands are part of a greater Russia. Uh, and ironically, this myth uh, may have been invented by the Ukrainians themselves for their own purposes uh, at a much later time uh, in an attempt to get the Russian Empire to come to the defense of Kiev when it was threatened by Poles and Ottomans. They said, we're, we're the, the mother of Russian civilization, come help us. Well, they were sort of making that up as a way to lure Russians uh, to, to help them for their own geopolitical purposes. Uh, but there's no evidence really that early Muscovite leaders bought into that or that that, that appeared much later in, in history, that myth, which persist to this day. Um, and the, you know, we, uh, there's, I talked about this sort of east-west divide, but it wasn't just a division, it was also something that Ukrainians used to their advantage. Uh, in the portion controlled by the Habsburg, um, there was an incentive uh, for the, the Habsburg Empire to allow the Ukrainian identity to, um, to develop as a way of defending against uh, uh, a development of a Russian identity. The Russians were, you know, trying to Russify the part of Ukraine that they held and, and create a sense that they're all part of the Russian Empire. And uh, that was, it was a concern from the Habsburgs that the, um, uh, those living in, in you know, uh, Galicia and the, the Ukrainians essentially under uh, uh, Habsburg rule would, um, would identify as Russian. So they, 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 were, they were happy to have Ukrainians identify as a separate Ukrainian identity uh, to defend against Russian irredentism. Uh, and that that gave an opportunity, though, for some cross-border pollination. So the um, Ukrainians living in the parts controlled by Russia uh, would, uh, would, if they need, if they, the writers would publish then in the in the Austrian-controlled part, um, and that helped develop a common literary language amongst uh, all Ukrainians. And then the Ukrainians living in, in, in um, Galicia also. Uh, used the fear that the, the Habsburgs had of um, of the uh, Russian kind of uh, influence to uh, uh, to get their way uh, and defend their interests in, within the Habsburg Empire vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Polish minority. The Ukrainians were 
um, saw them as sort of the biggest cultural threat. The, uh, the nobility had been, uh, became Polish-speaking under the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and so there were a lot of people who identified as Polish and spoke Polish, and uh, so you, and, and there was tension when the, under the Habsburg Empire between, uh, between those two communities, and uh, in order for Ukrainians to kind of get their, um, uh, get their way, they would, they would sort of threaten the Habsburgs, like, oh, well, if you don't, if you don't let us win, then, you know, we're, uh, um, we might end up identifying as Russian, and that's not what you want. So they, uh, again, sort of playing, playing the, the larger uh, sort of geopolitical actors off, the, off each other to uh, their own purposes. Um, and then, uh, of course, we have the, uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, the, uh, the Soviets, uh, interestingly, you know, they're, they're, theoretically the communist ideology is international, so they don't believe in nationalism. But when the Soviets came in, they, um, they, it was important to them to have every, um, every uh, citizen have their nationality on their identity card. And uh, they initially, uh, Lenin thought that he could use nationalism to his advantage to win the Russian Revolution. And, uh, and then, um, but you had a situation where you had people with local identities that uh, didn't necessarily identify with the, with the grand nation. Um, and they were essentially forced to adopt a nationality. Uh, you had you had villages where you would say, you know, what what is your nationality? What's your people? And they say, well, we're Catholic here. Well, that, that that's not a nationality. That's your religion. But that's that's how they identified. They said, well, or we, you know, um, uh, and so you have the Soviets come in and say you have to pick a nationality. And so ironically, they essentially helped kind of further uh, nationalism. They also helped that in a way by. Um, uh, Soviets were threatened by the Poles that, that came under the uh, Soviet control after the uh, after World War II and the um, the annexation of the uh, what's Western Ukraine and, and Western Belarus uh, had a large number of Polish-speaking people uh, as well as as well as Ukrainians um, and the Soviets repressed the um, the Poles and that helped sort of Ukrainize that the Western Ukraine and make it even more sort of um, purely Ukrainian in a, in a cultural and linguistic sense. Um, but then we had Stalin, who, who saw a threat from nationalism. Uh, it's, uh, I've always wondered if that had some relation to the fact that he's from a minority nationality, uh, he's Georgian, but he uh, very much tried to suppress nationalism. And he, uh, he saw this as a peasant problem. There's a connection between people come from villages who are very rooted, they know their history, they know their people. And, um, and developing a strong sense of identity. And that was important to stamp out if you want to replace it with a Soviet identity. Uh, and that helps explain the, uh, the terror famine, the Holodomor. Uh, there was an effort to wipe out sort of that village life. There were deportations where people moved from Western Ukraine to Eastern Ukraine or much further east. Um, and so there was a, an effort to kind of suppress nationality, uh, which was not entirely successful. Uh, Western Ukraine is still the center of Ukrainian nationalism. Um, and then you have the Donbass in the east as sort of the other extreme that was much more Sovietized, if you will. It was an industrialized area. Um, people were working in factories. There was more uprooted for village life. Um, there were some in-migration to the area for industrial purposes. Um, and so there's much less of a national identity there. People adopted a Soviet, a general Soviet identity. Um, but it's important to point out that you know Donbass has a history of having a very local identity, 
uh, and this, um, you know, the uh, more recent events, there's, there's sort of the, the, the Russians would have you believe that the Donbass is Russian. Uh, that's not necessarily the case. They identify locally as they have a Donbass identity. They, they think of themselves, uh, their interest first. Um, for instance, when uh, during the Russian Revolution, the, the people in that region uh, supported the anarchists who were tactically aligned with communists during the Russian Revolution. And again, it was sort of a tactical alliance situation. They they had their own way of, uh, of thinking. Um, and but then when it was uh, when there was a referendum on independence for Ukraine, uh, there was large margins in the Donbas voted for independence, including ethnic Russians. Uh, that's you know the Donbas had been an industrial showpiece of the Soviet uh, Soviet Union, but they felt exploited by Moscow. They they um, need taken advantage of, and so. They were. They thought they could get a better deal with uh, independent Ukraine, um, and it's interesting that uh, in David Satter, in his book *The Age of Delirium*, he talks about uh, Ukrainian nationalists that have been from Western Ukraine coming to Donbas, trying to trying to mobilize the people, and uh, and the reaction. He quotes uh, one person saying, uh, "Quote: It's it's all the same to us what language we speak, as long as there is sausage." Which I think is an interesting encapsulation of the uh, the notion. Uh, uh, I think it's probably not the case that, that everybody doesn't care if they change their language, but, but it is the case that they're interested in their economic well-being, they're interested in what's, what's working for them and what, how to feed their families, how to make their lives better, uh, not so much interested in uh, Russian nationalism or Ukrainian nationalism, but what, uh, what, what to make, how to make their life better. Um, so uh, Donbass is not, not Russian, but it's also not Ukrainian nationalist. It's, it's, you have to allow for uh, regional differences, and that that includes language. That's uh, I think one of the things that uh, you know we have um, the, the folks that are the you know sort of uh, more uh, Ukrainian nationalists would like everybody to speak Ukrainian. Would like to uh, like to encourage uh, a stronger uh, sort of traditional European type of nationalism to develop. That's um, that's something that that is. You know, with, with having a, a traditional local identity and having been more Sovietized, that's not something that's going to happen overnight, if, if, if ever. And you have to recognize that there is, Ukraine, uh, while it is one country and everybody considers themselves Ukrainian, they, have, they, they do have different, um, different mentalities in different parts, and so, uh, which is fine, because the United States has that too. We are a, a big country that has very different, um, different regional characteristics. Um, I'm an island living in DC, and so uh, it's uh, it's interesting. I think sometimes um, uh, Americans, because we have one sort of popular culture and we have theoretically one language with some minor regional differences, we, we think we're all kind of the same, and I think that actually papers over our differences. But you definitely, uh, uh, I hang around with a lot of Iowans, we identify with each other, and there is a cultural difference between the Midwest and, and uh, Washington, DC. Um, and that's the solution to that, we, that was the case in the 13 colonies. We, uh, uh, the United States adopted a system of federalism because we had we were a diverse country from the beginning, and not just because of immigrants. We also had, in fact, um, uh, you know, one of my uh, one of the, my favorite books is the um, uh, Albion Sea, the Four British Folkways in America. It talks about four different regions from Britain that all settled different parts of the United States, and you can still keep those cultural continuities. Um, to today, you can see where different places on the East Coast where they arrived and then where they migrated to across the country, 
you can still see that there are cultural differences that carry to today related to those original four, all from Britain, but different regions of Britain with different different cultural backgrounds. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's why we have a system of federalism that allows for difference. You can have it. You can have. You know, everybody has to have the same thing at the same time, and you can still have uh, one country with one um, one loyalty. Uh, I think sometimes um, European style nationalism can get too focused on. We have to have a very unitary government that, you know, we're one people. We have to have everything the same. Uh, you, if you do have a country where where people have a, a you know, different regions, um, you know the. One party in Ukraine is called the Party of Regions, and it's the one that uh, that appeals to folks in, in the East, uh, and it's also the more pro-Russia party. Uh, it'd be nice if maybe the pro-Western party could accommodate some of the regionalism without losing, uh, that doesn't mean you have to lose a sense of, of national identity and, and pro-Westernness. Um, so that's just my, that's my two cents as, as an American. Um, but I do think, I think a unifying factor can be this sort of Cossack identity. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm attracted to it perhaps because of that, the, the notion of a frontier. It's, it sounds familiar to Americans, um, but it's sort of a, there's a, the notion of an independent-minded people from a lot of different backgrounds that uh, just want to, you know, sort of live free. That, um, that, is a, that can be a unifying sense of identity in and of itself. That doesn't mean everybody has to have the same, uh, speak the same language or have the same, uh, same thing for dinner every night. You know, it's, you can... Uh, uh, you can have that, that independent street can be a unifying factor, in it, but also actually means that people are going to be different. Um, so uh, I think one, uh, I, my, in my paper, in my talk, I've talked a lot about sort of uh, Galicia and, and uh, the Donbass as sort of these extremes. I, I, uh, I don't mean to imply that that's that there's a, a dividing line right down the middle, and there's just two there's just two identities or two ways of thinking. Um, Ukraine is, is more diverse than that, and I think on a positive note, the area around Kiev is um, linguistically is essentially bilingual. So you've got Ukrainians sort of in the west and more Russians in the east, but in Kiev, people speak both languages. It isn't a problem. It isn't really a, uh, it isn't uh, it isn't an issue. So it, it can work. You can have one country uh, where there's Two languages, maybe some different mentalities, different regional differences, but um, but still all uh, still all be you know essentially one one nation with one uh, you know one foreign policy, and, and uh, that's essentially what uh, my paper is about. Anybody has questions? How long has Moscow, how many years, when this city was established? What's that? Moscow, capital of the Russian Federation. Yes. When it was established? I mean, uh, that's, I don't have exactly details. Uh, <coughs> what's that? About a month ago, a book came out in Kazakhstan claiming that it was the Kazakhs who established Moscow, was his name. Huh? So they claim it was something around the 8th century or maybe 9th. Okay. But Yuri Dolgoruki <coughs> came to Moscow in the 11th century. Okay, first time in the monastery, this was village, you go to Boyarin, Kuzma. It's 1147. Okay. Moscow approximately 900 years ago. What about Krakow? 
so that all of your work is sort of a digestion of yes. pre-existing documents that you have right. read and you have uh, it's your it's your take on pre-existing documents. Right. Okay. So you did not go into and doing any research within the country mm -hmm. to do this. Right. I see. I, I would recommend you do that. I would love to do that. I think if you did that, you would be very welcome. They would be welcome Western scholars, so I highly encourage you. Um, I wonder if you could comment, if you're, you, if you're familiar, on the effect of the war on, on Ukrainian nationalism through the regions from Western to Central to Eastern Ukraine, developing the sense of identity. Well, what I've read is that you have, uh, that since the war started, you have uh, actually had uh, uh, a decrease in, uh, in popularity of Russia in the Donbass and an increase in support for uh, the EU and the West. Uh, and I think, um, if anything, it has sort of stoked the sort of nationalism in the West. I've seen pictures of people, of Ukrainian soldiers who have, who have adopted a Cossack hairstyle to, uh, to uh, uh, when doing that. So I think it's actually been a unifying factor. Uh, I think it's, um, I think it's something that it, we see even in, in the politics of, of Ukraine today that there's uh, uh, before there was sort of this division around whether we should, you know, what, what, what the country should uh, um, have a more sort of, you know, friendly to Russia policy or friendly to the EU. That's kind of beyond, you know, irrelevant now. Everybody's, everybody's rallying around the flag and realizes that the the country is under threat, that that takes precedence uh, over, and that's what, you know, what we see in the United States when, when we have uh, we have a threat after 9-11, everybody came together and kind of put aside their, their, their differences. So, to that point, particularly on the, on the Western Front in Donbass, what we're seeing a lot of is the external force of Russia just trying to exploit the divisions that do exist, just like we have divisions in the states, yeah. uh, this exploitation in, in Ukraine has been going on for a long time. I frequently liken uh, to Ukraine as being a sort of a testing and proving ground. A lot of what Russia does there in Ukraine in various ways, cybersecurity, breakdowns of systems, infrastructure, banking, finance, medical systems, and the whole disinformation structure is, it's a practice that makes perfect. We see a practice there for many years, and now we've seen it used around the world, particularly, most noticeably as we hear about it, here in the United States. Um, and with regard to the West, where right after the invasion by Russia in Crimea, which they initially, of course, denied, uh, which was fueled by their forces out of uniform. Right. Uh, then there was an immediate takeover, of course, and with that takeover, there was the an immediate annexation of an area supposedly they had no part in dealing with. So it wasn't about the people there wanting something. It was an invasion. Yes, of course. Yeah, that, now, uh, that, of course, is that it played out immediately to pull a distraction from that area to the west 
western edge, I mean eastern edge, excuse me, I said, said western, I meant eastern, in Donbass. It was the exploitation again of, as you mentioned and this gentleman mentioned, the high identity of the people there. Yeah. Now, in this case though, as this has dragged on, Russia had tried to move those individuals who were, again, wanting to maybe separate themselves in some way because of their strong identity in Donbass. But suddenly, the Russia wanted them to adhere to what Russia wanted. Right. And, and I, I say in the paper that I think that backfired. That. I think that backfired. And I think to an extent so. they, I don't know if they believed their own propaganda and thought that they would come in and that they would, uh, uh, that they would somehow be able to, you know, that they would be able to stoke the divisions and work their advantage. I think it had the opposite effect. I think it had, uh, it had a backlash just because there were there were frustrations between people in the Donbas and the government of Kiev doesn't mean that they wanted to separate or that they were certainly not pro-Russian or identified as Russian. That's certainly not the case. And so I think I think I think it's backfired. Um, it seems like a lot of Russia's attempts lately have backfired. They attempted to uh, meddle in U.S. politics. I think that's backfired. Uh, uh, and it certainly is. I mean, it is a proving ground. I actually, um, my my main specialty is the Baltics, and I was uh, I was just in uh, uh, meeting with the Stratcom Center uh, in in Latvia and the, uh, the Cyber Defense uh, Center of Excellence in Estonia. And they were talking about how they actually do kind of look at Ukraine and what's happening in Ukraine in terms of cyber attacks as a way of they're using that as a proving ground to defend against the uh, uh, Russian uh, disinformation and, and cyber attacks. Um, it's also not nothing new. This is uh, exploiting divisions in society. Is something that they did to the United States all during the Soviet times. Uh, it's part of the old KGB playbook that's still essentially in use, just using more high tech and, and modern methods. Uh, so that's so, yeah. Um, are you seeing other uh, super supernational nat powers um, participating in the dynamics? And I specifically am thinking of the Chinese. Um, and with things like their One Belt, One Road initiative, kind of starting to get into the mix as well. And in what way are they doing? What What is the early indication to the effect of that? So um, I, the Chinese do have a very intentional strategic effort to um, exert influence uh, far and wide. They are becoming more involved in the post-Soviet space. I, I have not looked specifically into what they've done in Ukraine. I know they've been very active in the stands. Um, I can tell you very quickly, the, uh, the Chinese involvement is of long pedigree. They even bought a Ukrainian post-Soviet aircraft carrier and hauled it home. Uh, further, they've been buying grain and other foodstuff from Ukraine and delivering it to Egypt and the Middle East. Mm -hmm. The Russians have not interfered. The Ukrainians obviously are stuck because they can't sell their uh, agricultural products in the EU. There are EU regulations, but they can only get rid of it one way or two ways. They can sell their uh, foodstuffs to Russia. China doesn't really care who rules Ukraine. There are elements in the Ukrainian government which hope that they can influence the Chinese to lean on Moscow. The Chinese are happy to be in bed with anybody. Look at the Sudan. Absolutely morally indifferent in what's going on. They're not going to protect Ukraine. The Poles and others hope 
oh, if there's Chinese infrastructure, there's Chinese interest, yeah, that, that means that the Chinese will be will want to strike a bargain with anybody who will facilitate their activities. Are the Ukrainians shipping wheat to China? No, the Chinese buy it and sell it in the Middle East or deliver it to the Middle East hmm. to calm things down, which serves America's purposes too, obviously. How about Otherwise, the uh, Asian uh, infrastructure investment the development bank? bank? Yeah, are they uh, investing in Ukraine or no? Uh, I think that they were looking at Kerch and Crimea, not necessarily because of Ukraine. Okay. Just because whatever can yeah. be stable and make money for them. There may be some, there is some uh, in interest in Western Ukraine, but not because they want to support Ukraine or Western Ukrainian nationalism, but because they have a hub in Slovakia and Hungary. They don't have uh, an official hub in Poland. Right. So, thank you. Can I add to this two things about China? First of all, uh, the vessel which uh, deliver the cable from Russia to Crimea was on the Chinese flag. Yeah. And uh, this was German uh, vessel with German equipment, but on the Chinese flag. Yeah. Second, uh, at the very end of Yanukovych uh, uh, ruling, yeah, there was a plan already signed to take the Ukrainian port Saki, which is Crimean port, and this is resort. Yeah, this is this is like Salt Lake City, for example. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And to make this uh, port an ocean port, and to deliver 10,000 Chinese agricultural workers to Saki, and to make huge agricultural area to uh, develop rice and other cultures. Yeah. So this was already signed plan, already not even on paper, but already feasibility studies, etc., etc. And the situation with Maidan, etc., ruined this plan, annexation ruined all these all this plans. So China is uh, pretty much involved physically, I would say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of Chinese people in Ukraine. The only thing that they are not in Kiev and big cities. They are trying to live uh, in small cities, mm -hmm. uh, in suburbs, etc. They don't want to be visible. So, de facto, there are a lot. It's, a, it's, it's interesting because China and Russia both have a way much exert influence, but they have slightly different motivations and ways of going about it, uh, and they're starting to overlap in terms of where they where they operate. But Russia's attitude is more they they want to reestablish or expand the the Russian Empire, and the, the Chinese it's less about um, having a direct imperial involvement as it is exerting great power influence everywhere they can, and, and sometimes in more subtle ways. Just as a, a postscript to what you're saying is, yeah, I think it's interesting. It's not so much that China is looking, I think, to um, uh, confront uh, Russian influence in that area, as they are trying to set up an axis vis-a-vis -vis former European and Western influence, yeah. particularly financially, because they're saying, we're an alternative to the EU rules. We're an alternative to the World Bank. Western-dominated uh, international financial. They structures. would like to plant United yeah. States and the West as the the superpower, exactly. um, and their as the have axis, a long as the financial so. axis. And I think that's they're on the move. This one, six. Yeah. War zone in Donbass in my city of Lugansk. Last two years, eighty-six thousand people 
food is Rostov area to Russia. Yeah, 86,000 people free to work. They feel themselves that they are Bashkirs, partners from Kazan for Russians. Because mostly 6 million people moved in 1948 from Central Russia to Ukraine. In 1946 47, this was forced mainly famine in Ukraine. I remember that. I was, I was born before the Second World War. 3.5 million people died. Nobody talking about this family. 86,000 moved to Russia. Do you know how many people moved to central Ukraine and now try to move to Poland? No. 1.5 million. 1.5 million people. Not all of them made it Ukrainians, but people want to live in European culture. Right, of course. Yeah. Right. Thank you, Lord. All the government opened the door. And now, how many? Almost millions of millions. Yeah. 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 It's not language. No, I, I agree. It's that, not culture. It's freedom. That's actually part of my point. I, yes, and situation I, I, in Ukraine, economical theory, but 1,800 newspapers, many independent TV stations, you can stay near residence of president or his office and shout and kill your bastard is nobody will arrest you. Yep. Try doing it in Moscow, something yep. against Putin. You know, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, I I that's absolutely right. And that's actually part of the part of the point of the paper is that it, explaining what uh, uh, you know I, I admire the sort of Ukrainians um, uh, independent streak and and their uh, uh, and certainly Ukraine has had uh, is a much better tradition of, of uh, Western-style democracy. It certainly hasn't. It has a ways to go to be um, uh, to, to perfect it. But it's, I certainly agree that you would much sure, rather. Uh, sure, sure, thanks. I asked many people in different sessions why United States government didn't inform Ukrainian government at least two weeks before Russian invasion in Crimea. CIA, all agencies, they gave all information about this invasion. And US because it's I don't know yes, that. No. Yeah. Okay, it's first. And second, it's very popular now in DC. Try to convince American officials, Ukrainians, all delegations they bring words in. Decentralization. Decentralization is will be very good for Ukraine. No, decentralization will be end of Ukraine. This Morgenthau plan. Morgenthau, you know this name. I know yeah, who want to erase German nation, divided German United States, destroyed all industry, potato field. It's what exactly Washington now will do with Ukraine. So there's a, decentralization has a certain ring to it uh, for Europeans, and there's a, I know there's a history, uh, and that's not. Uh, I don't. I would say I advocate federalism more along American lines. Uh, our United States has a system of federalism and it hasn't divided us. In fact, it's united us. And I, I, my, my personal view is that the, the, we've moved away from our tradition of federalism and we, we are now uh, seeking more and more policies to be decided at the national level. And that has actually caused more divisions in the United States as we've done that. Uh, so, so my view is that you, you have to allow for local differences. That doesn't mean that you, um, that you, that you, you know, you set a precedent for uh, some sort of autonomy or that sort of thing. Uh, you, you know, I, 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 with the precedent in Crimea where it was an autonomous republic, then some people could argue that that autonomy gave a pretext. You know, I, uh, I, don't, uh, I don't advocate for dividing a country up in a way that would fracture it or cause it to, to break apart. 
Uh, and certainly, I don't think that that Crimea's status, it, it may have been a pretext, but it was a pretext. I mean, it was a, it was a Russian invasion. It, it wasn't, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a, a matter of that you allow that, um, you know, sort of degree of local control, and all of a sudden they vote to leave. It, it was a, it was an external invasion. Um, so I, I don't, um, I take your point, and I, I don't advocate for breaking up Ukraine, but I do think that there has to be some, some accommodation for local differences. Um, I, you know, it's it is certainly the case in the United States that our our we're we're very divided right now, and I think part of that is due to the fact that we're trying to decide issues like healthcare and education that have extremely personal impact on people's lives, and we're having a one-size-fits-all situation. You know, if, uh, if you think about, uh, you know, a personal like, decision about what to have for dinner, sometimes as a family, you can't all agree on what to have for dinner, um, but usually the parents uh, it, rule it as not, it's not a democracy, the parents get to decide, but not everybody's always happy. But if you try to have an entire city have the same thing for dinner, or an entire country have the same thing for dinner, a lot of people are going to have something for dinner that they don't really like. And there's no reason why you all have to have the same thing for dinner. So, on important things like you know, obviously, um, you know, the national security and 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 foreign policy, you have to have a single a single one, and you can and you can have a strong sense of national identity and a strong foreign policy. But that doesn't mean that you have to mandate, for instance, uh, that everybody speak the same language um, or try to encourage people to. You can you can have regional differences in, in language. Um, you're, you're going to no matter what. Um, uh, we have differences in language in the United States. Um, sometimes I think we get we get lulled into thinking that we all speak the exact same language, and so when we don't understand each other, we don't know why, and it's because we do have some some local differences. Um, and we just have you have you have to accept that and accommodate that in, in any country, in, in my view. Um, thank you for that. And just a footnote to my China thing. You might be interested in this, since I know you're. Boss is senator from Iowa, right? And they ship a lot of corn. Oh, by the way, I, sh I, I okay. forgot to mention ahead of time, but I am speaking on my own behalf and not on behalf of anybody else. It's very important for everybody to understand. So, for the record. Anyway, I just googled something, and five years ago, China got 95 percent of its corn from the United States. They now get ninety-five percent of their corn from China. Uh, from the Ukraine, China buys ninety-five percent of Ukraine's corn gets it from Ukraine rather than the United States. So I think to some extent, you know, we kind of have a Western-centric view about discussing, like, what will happen in a region like uh, Ukraine. And we have heretofore been able to play off Western institutions against Russia. But I just think that uh, China is now a huge new player that's going to relevate, uh, relegate the West to third-party sideliners. And they, they're really good. And it, like I said, not so much vis-a-vis -vis confronting uh, Russian influence. As a matter of fact, the Chinese, as you said, may be perfectly happy with uh, Russia dominating. But basically saying, we want to supplant the Western, uh, the yep. Western influence economically first. Mm -hmm. first. And then, obviously, uh, in broader terms. My boss did do a speech on that in the Senate floor, if you want to look it up, about uh, <laughs> a month ago or so. So that's something that's a concern to him. He went to China um, uh, about a month ago or so and came back very concerned about, about their their very strategic approach to uh, world affairs. Um, yeah. uh, your lecture, 
about national identity. So can you uh, tell about what the Ukrainian national identity in a couple of sentences? For example, I give you an example of uh, Russia. It's an evil empire controlled by dictators for the last 300 years. So give a national identity for Ukraine. Um, well, as I said, I think the the most unifying identity and the most important symbol is the Cossack identity. Uh, it's you know uh, uh, independent-minded people who want to chart their own course. That's 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 what I see as sort of the, the unifying theme throughout all of Ukraine. Okay, that's good. I want to say the lady about China. Excuse me, ma'am. Yes. Leonid Kravchuk, first Ukrainian president, people they know Chinese interest in Ukraine. Mm. Right? This bloody bastard. Right. In the beginning, the Americans and the Soviet Ukrainian army and now people for China. Mm. Interesting question. Okay, so I don't personally know a lot about the Ukrainians that have been there. But I saw a film which paints a kind of troubling picture. So it's called Ukraine Brand. And, and I'm just trying to get your take on this. He, he portrays the leadership of Ukraine as you know, kind of potentially fascists, there's no really nasty things in the past. What's your. That, well, that sounds like uh, you maybe got that uh, from Vladimir Putin. I mean, the. That's that's a that's actually part of the old KGB playbook. To anybody that that uh, has any allegiance to the West, you call them a fascist. So um, that they do that to the Baltics, they do that to Ukraine. Uh, I I don't think uh, I don't think that's probably. A, I haven't seen the movie. Uh, I've seen some Oliver Stone movies that were less than factually accurate. Um, so I great uh, movies. Yeah, well, they're they're compelling, uh, compelling entertainment. But they're I think they're entertainment. So I, I would discount that most of that, which isn't to say that you can't find a, a, a Ukrainian who said something bad, or but it, to say that that Ukrainians are fascists or there's a long history of fascism. Uh, it's um, that's you have to keep in mind that that's uh, that's being used as a, as a narrative to discredit. Western-leaning Ukrainians, um, you know, there's a, there is a history during World War II and things that, but it's not, it's not the case that um, that I think it's a pervasive issue the way Putin would would have you believe. So there is an example of Russian propaganda. It's not yeah. Oliver Stone movie. It yeah. just made introduction. Uh -huh. There is a director of this movie who is Ukrainian. This movie was made on Ukrainian money. They just took an interview, very small introduction from Oliver Stone, and they declared that this is a movie by Oliver Stone. Oh, I think because I didn't see this movie either. So this is uh, one more good example of manipulation. And this is in, on TV, uh, extremely, this, this Russian TV, the Goebbels, I mean, is an uh, honest man in comparison with what they're telling me. This movie is uh, the sort of movie. A lot about Georgia, Crimea, etc. Yeah. Uh, could, could you speak to a little bit more to uh, you mentioned the Baltic states uh, like Lithuania and so forth? Uh, can you speak a little bit more to their engagement and support of Ukraine? Because I, I uh, 
you know form about former ambassador Petrus Vitakunas and his involvement in support of Ukraine both for the Lithuanian government and also and also engaging now with directly with the the uh, the government of Ukraine. Uh, I don't know specifically about that, but I know that all of the Baltics, that is a major part of their, um, they, they, uh, they see a sort of, uh, I don't know if responsibility is the right word, they're, they're very interested in helping other countries sort of make the transition from the, the uh, sort of post-Soviet um, sphere to uh, a fully Western democracy. Uh, so there's a, there are a lot of Balts that are very involved in that. A, a good friend of mine is Estonian who spent the last year in Kiev um, on a nonprofit that teaches Ukrainians coding to try to help develop the um, the economy and civil society because you can you can make Western salaries in Ukraine if you know how to do um, IT and of course Estonians are um, very interested in IT and have made a name for themselves in that and the other Balts uh, are also but they they both, all the Baltic countries too also tend to um, devote a lot of their the extent that they do foreign aid or, or efforts in, in the region. And so um, I, uh, I, in fact, I attended a, uh, after the, the Russian invasion of Crimea, I attended a protest in front of the Russian embassy that was uh, hosted by the Joint Baltic American National Committee. So they take that very seriously. In fact, and, uh, last summer when I was in Estonia, there, were, there was a protest in front of the Russian embassy there. So it, um, it's something that, that they identify very strongly with uh, uh, certainly the future of Ukraine. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, um, a little while ago that, uh, that that federalism worked extremely well in the United States. It actually strengthened the country. Mm -hmm. Sort of counterintuitive, like the more the more the more independence you give to due to separate regions, the stronger the, the country becomes as a whole. That's counterintuitive, yeah. but very interesting. Um, how do you see that uh, playing out in Ukraine? I, I, I worked in Ukraine just, just three months ago, and what I, what I noticed was in the West there's a very strong tendency uh, towards, towards um, uh, independent um, uh, municipalities. They want to work independently of Kiev. They're very nationalistic Ukrainian, but they want to be independent of Kiev. Central parts of, of Ukraine and eastern parts of Ukraine that we visited were very Soviet in their mentality. They just we want to know what the next steps are. We're waiting for Kiev to decide for us. Mm -hmm. So you do have very, very different sort of mentalities. Um, okay. Your statement about federalism working so extremely well in the United States, could you cast like a, what your image would be for, for Ukraine? Well, uh, I will say that I am not going to draft a constitution for them. And I don't, I don't think maybe federalism is the exact American model in the sense that we have different states that are going to, uh, but I think more local control, that not everything has to be decided in Kiev. And I think actually maybe the municipality model is, is, is better than, than say carving up uh, Ukraine into, into this region is going to have its own regional government. And uh, that may not be helpful, it may not be easy to do. Uh, it, it's not, a, it's not a matter of, you know, they didn't start with 13 colonies and then come together. It, it's a very different history. So uh, the, the American analogy works to a, to a point, but it's obviously not perfect. It's a very different country. But I, I think the general principle of um, allowing for regional differences uh, and not deciding things um, nationally that don't have to be 
uh, applies. And I think probably the main thing I think of is in terms of language policy, um, uh, maybe education to an extent that, that can be there can be some local control in that. Uh, uh, there's but it, that that doesn't that doesn't mean to your point that we should be making making regional governments whether whether they didn't exist or whether it's where it's not. Um, where there's not a history of that, or it's not not appropriate. Um, so I, I'm speaking mainly to a, main, a general principle, as opposed to I'm going to come in and, and and say I think this is how you should you should arrange your country. Can you imagine local government in Catalonia, Castilia, Galicia, Basconia, Andalusia? No, Spain, France, Normandy, Britain, the France, France, Basconia. No, in Poland. Kashubi, Mazuri, Mazovshi, no. The United States never tried to divide this country. I don't think the United States should try to divide anybody. I, 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 really? I, I'm not, I don't think, I'm not advocating for U.S. foreign policy to, to tell Ukraine what they should do. I, no. I'm, I'm saying as a single person, this is, no. my thought is that local control always, is my All of us, we remember Sherman marched to South, how North Respond for southern state, right to say we're not very completely different, but local government, okay? And we know what's happened in Balkans. In Balkans, what's happened? I was there. I saw in my eyes three hundred twenty thousand people slaughtered. Okay. Now same story tried to do it in Ukraine. And you know why? Why Balkans? Why Ukraine? No. It's not war against Croats or Serbians or also, or Ukrainians. It's war against Germany. If United States government really want to crush Russia, about European countries, three countries, Poland, they're very brave people. Yeah. Yeah, really. I have a lot of friction when I travel around Poland when I have Ukrainian symbols. Many people say, ah, oh, you're pro Nazi, it's <laughs> terrible things, you're at the Second World War. Yes, I told you, yeah, we did it. And you did it also against us. Because both of us, too much temper. Always like Ukrainians, you love freedom. I don't care about my lifestyle, how many. I never, by the way, in my life, I almost say that it suits me. I don't like this. But Polish army, Bundeswehr, and France, they can create European army and keep Russian army behind the Ural. United States, United States, categorically, it is European army. Decades, decades, decades. I have feeling that American army in Germany, not protect Germany for American freedom, no, occupy Germany control. Seventy years after war, it's enough. Enough. And a lot of Polish people have nuclear weapons, what Ukraine can produce. Well, I, I disagree with, with that, uh, certainly that impression. I, in fact, I think um, one actually interesting point is that uh, I talked about the history of Ukraine playing off great powers against each other. I don't. I wouldn't carry that analogy too far in the sense that I don't see the United States and the West as as a, as another sort of imperial power. I think I think Russia under Putin certainly is, but the, um, the United States doesn't go and conquer and and occupy countries with the intention of, of staying there or, or continuing to tell them what to do. Uh, I, the Russians will tell. Uh, you know, tell some of my Baltic friends that they uh, 
that oh you you know you left you left our sphere and now now you're just puppets of them and they say no we actually begged them to come here and when I was there they were essentially uh, asking for more American presence uh, there and I, that's because they want to be Western and they see the United States as the best guarantor of being able to um, preserve the sort of Western civilization and, and democracy and so uh, they. Um, um, uh, just to that point, you were talking about the Baltic, and I was glad you brought it up because that's what I was hoping to hear you say regarding some of the Baltic, your experience with the Baltic areas, and which is which coincides, of course, with Poland and coincides also with so much of Ukraine. Um, what, but yet, with all that desire for engagement with the West, the Western with Europe, with mm -hmm. North, with the U.S., North America, Canada too, a lot of Canadians involved in this. Um, why have we seen so tone deaf the Trump administration with, uh, and beyond tone deaf, uh, decrying NATO when the Baltic states have embraced it because of the, the, the situation? Why are we seeing such uh, uh, this uh, pushback from this administration at a time when a democracy should be something that we're waving our flag about. I can't answer that. Uh, you, you could have, you would have to ask a spokesperson for the Trump administration, which I most certainly am not. Um, but I think we, well, we've seen mixed messages. Uh -huh. um, I think we should speak with one voice and, and say that we're, uh, we, we stand with these countries. And I think we, we, we have shown with our actions that we are uh, prepared to defend uh, um, Western democracies. We, uh, uh, the administration has actually uh, agreed to sell um, lethal arms to Ukraine, and the, uh, has moved troops uh, to Poland. Uh, and we have we have some troops that come in uh, to the Baltics. I certainly met the troops when I was there. Uh, they would like a permanent presence, um, uh, which I uh, because they believe that the American presence is more important than the. The Canadians or the Germans or the, even the British, uh, in terms of sending a message to uh, to Russia, um, I guess I was going to say on the European army is the one the point I was going to make is that I think a European army doesn't have the same credibility as I said the the, the Bolts said that we're glad we're very glad to have the Germans we don't want them replaced with Americans but we also would like Americans to be there because that is that's the Russian that is credibility with the Russians I don't think. Uh, a Bundeswehr uh, working with France is going to have the same credibility or deterrent factor, but and I um, so anyway. Well, thanks very much for everybody for coming and. Thank you.